Dear Daddy, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. When Bob Hope was asked if he thought he would qualify for heaven, he replied, Well, I sure hope I don't miss out on a technicality. A lot of the people that I meet have exactly that problem. What if their theology is deficient in some crucial area? Will the keeper of heaven's gate scan their personal statement of faith and, with a regretful shake of the head, announce that they've not quite made it, in the same way that a driving test is failed because of one trivial error? Theology maintains the purity of the divine stream, but love is the boat that carries us to Jesus. When I was touring South Africa on my own in 1993, I received a letter from Katie, my daughter. I'll read it to you. To Dad, I hope you will write to us when you get to South America. I hope you like my picture, spelt P-I-T-C-H-A. It is supposed to, one word, look like you. I miss you very much. Love from Katie. Kiss, 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 kiss. Underneath this is the picture, luridly coloured in felt pens, followed by even more kisses. Well, as a theological communication from a child to a parent, this is a mess, isn't it? I mean, I wasn't in South America. I was in South Africa. Next, the so-called representation of me is wildly inaccurate. Anyone who thinks otherwise is in serious trouble. Everyone knows I'm an old man with a beard. Then there's the spelling. Since when was supposed to, S-P-O-S-T-O, included in the Oxford Dictionary? And as for the lines of handwriting, well, they're, they're all over the place, up and down like a roller coaster. And what's happened to the address and the date and the telephone number? They're not there, are they? Kisses are all very well, but they don't tell you anything useful, do they? What kind of communication is this? Well, I'll tell you what kind of communication this is. It's the most wonderful letter any lonely father ever had from a beloved child. Do you seriously think I would have wanted so much as a single letter to be changed just for the sake of some boringly legalistic accuracy? No, of course not. Every kiss counted. Each tongue-protruding attempt to convey love touched my heart in that distant, troubled land. Theology is important, but God needs to be loved, like everyone else. Don't be afraid to climb onto his knee because you lack understanding. Daddies need kisses, and the rest can wait. Pray with me. When we look at the erudition and learning of some Christians, we can feel intimidated, Father. Do you really want to hear from us twits who can't quite remember where Ephesians is and don't know if the Bible is supposed to be infallible or inerrant or both and aren't sure what the difference is anyway? How silly we are to be put off by such things. Teach us to love you from our hearts with innocence and enthusiasm and warmth. Dear Father, teach us to love. Amen. Lady Anne Cook, the eldest daughter of the 5th Earl of Leicester, stood at the door of Westminster Abbey, dressed in a gorgeous embroidered white satin gown. She was twenty, one of six maids of honour, 
about to pick up the Queen's twenty-one-foot-long velvet train and follow her up the aisle at the start of the coronation. What followed that momentous day for Lady Anne Cook, who became Lady Glenconnor, was a life of continued service to the royal family, as well as running enormous houses, having five children, hosting glamorous parties and travelling the world. But her life story is also shot through with terrible family tragedy. Then, at the age of 87, she published her best-selling memoir, Lady-in-Waiting, followed by two novels. Her new book, Whatever Next, will be published in the autumn. Anne Glenconnor, in the 1980s, your really quite glamorous life was completely blown apart by unimaginable family tragedy. Your eldest son, Charlie, was struggling with a heroin addiction, the effects of which ultimately killed him. And in 1986, your second son, Henry, was diagnosed with HIV and quickly became fatally ill with AIDS. And then, in 1987, your third child, Christopher, had a devastating motorbike accident while on his gap year, which almost killed him. This must have almost killed you, actually, this series of events. Yes, I often think I, I don't know how I actually got through it. The only sort of thing about something like this happening in one's life that one feels that nothing ever again could be as bad. Um, well, that's what I hope, anyway. Um, I've always had a faith, but it was rather sort of, you know, going to church every Sunday and, you know, saying one's prayers. And it wasn't actually until this happened that I really found my faith. Christopher was in a coma for months and doctors were quite close on giving up on him, weren't they? But you didn't give up. Uh, you, uh, I, well, I had a very serious conversation with God, and I said, look, I know you're going to take two of my sons. You're not going to take Christopher, and you've got to help me. And this is what happened. I became energised, and I was able then to go on coping. Uh, two of my sons then died. Christopher was in a coma for five months. He couldn't speak for a year. I looked after him for five years. Um, and I was able to do it. And how is he now? Well, Christopher has been married twice. He's, he had two very clever daughters, and he's never been able to work. I mean, he's still very badly disabled. But he's never complained. He's always cheerful. He has, uh, in the past, used to help other people who were head injured. And w w when I was looking after during that time, I used to play a lot of music because it's the one thing that, that really relaxed me. And, uh, I don't know, it gave, it gave me sort of hope, actually, mm. And this, this Requiem was one of them, one of the things I listened to a lot.
Diazire from Verdi's Requiem with David Parry conducting the London Philharmonic Orchestra and Choir and the London Chorus. It did occur to me that that is possibly the most operatic of all requiems, so it combines two of your loves, doesn't it? It certainly does. I, I, Christopher was sort of plugged into it at one point. I thought it might help him in his coma, which I think he did, actually. <laughs> <laughs> got him going. It yes. got him going. Yes. Well, uh, from opera to operetta, because we've got music for your father now, who yes. was a big fan, wasn't he, of Gilbert and Sullivan. He was a slightly distant figure in your childhood. He was. I mean, I partly chose this because he was conducted by Malcolm Sargent. And Malcolm Sargent was a great family friend. Uh, my mother liked him very much. And uh, my father was distant, but the any time, uh, uh, once a year, he thought he should do something with me. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and um, so operetta, he's mad about the Gypsy Baron and uh, those sort of operas. And Gilbert and Summer, he really loved it. And it was rather a treat because, you know, he used to take me on my own and I sort of dressed up and uh, and went. And it was a sort of lovely occasion uh, that my father was doing something with me because on the whole, he didn't. He wasn't, you know, because I wasn't a boy, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you what I am. I'm a genuine philanthropist or other kinds of sham. It's little fault of temper and it's social defect. In my erring fellow creatures, I endeavor to correct. To all their little weaknesses, I open people's eyes. And little plans to snub the self-sufficient I devise. I love my fellow creatures. I do all the good I can. Yet everybody says I'm such a disagreeable man. And I can't think why. John Reed explaining his misanthropy in that aria from the first act of Princess Ida by Gilbert and Sullivan. Malcolm Sargent conducting the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra and the Doily Cart Opera Chorus in that 1965 recording. And the final twist in the story of your marriage to Colin was that when he died in 2010, he left everything to his former servant, Kent. That must have tested you to the very limit. I think that was the worst thing, in a way. I minded so much for the children. I mean, I and the children weren't mentioned at all. And, I I mean, I've been looking after Colin because he had cancer, been with him. He made a new will, which made me very nervous. Uh, And this lawyer came forward with one piece of paper. And on it, it said, um, I leave everything to Kent Adoni, and I trust he will carry out my wishes towards the family. And so when I went to Kent, I said, I do hope Kent, who I was very friendly with, I'd held his hand during the funeral, um, and he sort of cried all over me. And he just said, then, I don't know what you mean. So I knew that was it. Um, and in a way, it did, perhaps it did me quite a lot of good, because um, I wouldn't have written my book if it hadn't been for that. I felt I must try and make a bit of money uh, for the children, um, and I was able to. 
Was it not possible to challenge that? Yes, my uh, grandson did, because he he's now Lord Glenconnor. And in the end, after seven long years, he got some of the land back. Yeah. Um, and um, so at least he got something. Yes. We're going to end the programme on a celebratory note, because in July you will turn 90. Well, I know. I cannot... <laughs> Well, I, and um, my cousin, Tom Lester, very kindly said I can have my birthday lunch at Holcomb. So I'm absolutely thrilled. And I'm going to sort of do it up because I had, I mean, I've been christened there. Uh, I had my coming out, wonderful coming out dance there with Princess Margaret. The king and queen came with white tie and medals. And uh, I was married there and I'll be buried there. And um, so I'm having, it's really exciting. I'm doing up the long gallery as it was when I had my coming out dance a long time ago now. Now I'm really looking forward to that. And did you used to enjoy not only sailing, but doing Norfolk things like collecting samphire on the marsh? Absolutely. Samphire, well, that suddenly, because nobody knew about samphire when I was there. We ate it. But now it's in the smartest restaurants, cost of fortune for one tiny little bit. And, of course, one of the things that has given me more pleasure in my life, I suppose, than anything else, is sailing. And I learned to sail when I was five at Burnham every day, and I gave up when I was 80 because I really felt I couldn't pull my boat in. And I ended up with a mirror, which is a dear little boat with a red sail. And so I thought I must have something to do with sailing to end it. And also, because um, I'm getting very old now, I spend my whole time going to other people's funerals. And I make a little list about what, what I would like in my... I've got such a big list, I'll have to cut it down. But I had thought at one point, that my children were so horrified, that, that I could be put into a boat and set on fire and be sent out to sea. Ah, yes. Well, of course... But I'm not quite sure if you're allowed to do that nowadays. <laughs> Trouble.
Gentis has produced a series of talks where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. Today he looks at some of the problems Moses faced when trying to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. The fear of the Lord just makes good sense. He is God and I am not. He is all-powerful and I am made of flesh and blood. He is not bound by time and space and I, Moses, live within the confines of both. God is absolutely good, and I was born in sin. I thought the rebellion of Korah and the way the earth opened up and interred not only the perpetrators, but also their families would be the end of the problem. But it didn't end there. The poisonous seed of treason was indeed planted deeply. The next day all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Aaron and I again, saying, You are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. It was as if they thought that we had the power to cause mountains and valleys to collide and bury people. It came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against us, they turned toward the tent of meeting, and the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Aaron and I came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to me, saying, Get away from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. Immediately, the people realized that the Lord's wrath had been provoked and that they all fell on their faces before the tent in order to stay it. Quickly, I urged Aaron to take his censer and put fire in it from the altar and lay incense on it, then to bring it to the congregation and make atonement for them. For I perceived the anger of the Lord that had gone forth, There was a virulent plague that went through the crowds, and as the sickness spread quickly, Aaron ran through them with the censer to make atonement for them, taking his stand between the dead and the living and stopping the plague. Aaron then returned to the door of the tent of meeting, but not until 14,700 people were dead. The scenes that followed were, well, just awful. Funeral after funeral, burial after burial, the shocked faces reflecting the images of a broken people that had finally understood that the power of the Lord that had been unleashed on the Egyptians could also be unleashed on them if they disrespected him. That day, the people finally understood the fear of the Lord. He then spoke to me thus, Speak to the sons of Israel and get from them a rod for each father's household, twelve rods, from all their leaders according to their father's households. You shall write each name on his rod, and write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi, for there is one rod for the head of each of their father's households. You shall then deposit them in the tent of meeting, in front of the testimony where I meet with you. It will come about that the rod of the man whom I choose will sprout. Thus I will lessen from upon myself the grumblings of the sons of Israel, who are grumbling against you. So 
I did as God commanded and ordered the leaders of each tribe to bring a rod to be stored in the tent of testimony. On the next day, I went into the tent and the rod of Aaron had sprouted and put forth buds that produced blossoms and even had ripe almonds hanging from the buds. I then brought out all the rods from the presence of the Lord and showed them to the sons of Israel. Each man took his particular rod, but they all saw the rod of Aaron, alive and full of flowers and ripe almonds. There could be no mistaking what the Lord had revealed in this. Aaron was God's anointed priest, and I, Moses, was chosen to lead the people. The point was made, so I instructed the leader of each tribe to come and retrieve their particular rod. But the Lord told me to preserve Aaron's rod, saying, Put the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels, so that you may put an end to their grumblings against me, so that they will not die. I then did exactly as God commanded. After this incident, there was a marked difference in the people's attitude towards the Lord. They cried out, Behold, we perish, we are dying, we are all dying. Everyone who comes near, who come near to the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Are we to perish completely? In fact, they were terrified of God, but failed to realize that their attitudes and actions brought about the plagues, the violence, and the horrific events that befell them. The fear of the Lord just makes good sense. He is God and we are not. He is all-powerful and we are made of flesh and blood. He is not bound by time and space, and I, Moses, with all this people, live within the confines of both. God is absolutely good, and we were born in sin. I just wondered, if you saw Aaron's rod where you are right now, with the buds, the flowers, and the almonds hanging from the stem, where just the night before it was a dead stick, how would you react? This is taken from the book of Numbers, chapters 16 and 17 in the Holy Bible. Footsteps walking with me Footsteps I cannot see But every move I make And every step I take I know they're there with me They walk with me all the way Beside me day by day Through good and bad Through happy and sad Those footsteps won't go away I'll never walk in life alone There'll always be someone there I know he won't let me down He's with me everywhere The special things in life I've done have been through him and his love I've been blessed in so many ways Thanks to the Lord above Footsteps walking with me Footsteps I cannot see But every move I make and every step I take I know they're there with me They walk with me on the Beside me day by day Through good and bad Through happy and sad Those footsteps won't go away Thank you. 
life's been planned by the one who's guiding me. When I'm led by the hand of someone I can't see, I'm not always sure where to go. That's when I follow his lead. I know that the pathway that he shows will help me to succeed. Footsteps walking with me. Footsteps I cannot see. But every move I make and every step I take, I know they're there with me. They walk with me all the way. Beside me day by day, through good and bad, through happy and sad, those footsteps won't go away. Through good and bad, through happy and sad, by my side they will stay.